Well, the songs should have been a clue, but does everyone know what this Sunday is? It's the, that's right, the first Sunday of Advent, and I know that might come as a surprise. Where has this year gone? Some of us are still digesting turkey and cranberries, and here we are singing Christmas carols already. It's hard to believe. Well, I get to introduce Advent this morning, and then I get to preach the first of our four Advent topics for 2022. But before I explain what Advent is, let me ask this. How many of you observe Advent in one way or another, uh, whether it be Advent devotionals, candles, or calendars? Also, probably about a third of us, maybe a half of us do that. Well, this might surprise you. Advent isn't generally part of the Reformed tradition. A lot of Reformed churches these days observe it, but for the most part, the Reformers themselves didn't approve of the celebration. So if you are here and you don't observe Advent, that's perfectly okay, and I'm not going to try to persuade you one way or the other this morning. That's not what this message is about. But let me tell you what Advent is. We get the word Advent from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means the coming or the arrival. It's centered around two events, one past and one future. The first advent was the arrival of Jesus, the promised King, the Christ. We celebrate His arrival or His birth on Christmas Day. That's the first advent. The second advent is the second coming of Christ, His future return, which He promised and for which Believers eagerly await. So there are two Advents in view in this season. The past arrival of King Jesus and the future return of King Jesus. It was around the 5th century when Advent started gaining some traction in the church. And at that time, it wasn't as much a celebration as it was a time for serious, heart-searching preparation. It was a time of repenting, fasting, and anticipating what was to come. In the Western church, Advent was celebrated for four weeks leading up to Christmas Day, and in the Eastern church, it was celebrated for six weeks. And the seriousness that it once had, for the most part, has been lost. I think you would agree that four weeks of repenting, praying, and fasting is something quite different than our 24 days of opening little Advent calendar calendar doors looking for hidden chocolates. Nevertheless, that's what Advent was. It was a season of four weeks that were set apart for heart-searching preparation and anticipation of what was to come. So this morning and for the next three weeks, that will be our focus. We're not going to light candles or do anything like that. We're just going to open the Word of God, as we always do, and we're going to ask Him to search our hearts and show us something of the glory of the two advents of King Jesus. First, though, let's ask this. What 
would be the appropriate topics for these four Sundays. I know that typically churches talk about these four things, hope, peace, love, and joy. And those are beautiful topics, and we've covered those as well. But, and even some say that that's what the four candles on the Advent wreath represent. But this year, we're going to do something different. We're going to go back in time to the traditional Advent topics, which were known as the four last things. And they were known for centuries by that title, the four last things. Spurgeon said that these four last things were the important four things. All Christians, men, women, and children, it was said, should meditate on these four things and prepare themselves for what was to come. One, the certainty of death. Two, the terrors of the day of judgment. Three, the joys of heaven. And four, the pains of hell. Those are the traditional topics for Advent, and they will be our topics this year. This then is the first of the four last things, death. So with that grave seriousness, if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We will be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. I chose this passage specifically because of what Paul says about death in verse 21. We will zero in on those four words, but first, let's get some context. Paul wrote this letter from prison to the church in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, the ruins of which are in modern-day eastern Macedonia. He told the Philippians, contrary to what you might expect, that his imprisonment was actually serving to advance the gospel. And because of his persecution, some of the brothers were becoming bold in proclaiming the name of Christ. Others, though, began preaching out of selfish ambition just to spite Paul. Paul wasn't so much concerned about that because he had a laser-like focus on what mattered most, that Christ's name be proclaimed. And because of that, even because of the wicked motive of these preachers, Paul rejoiced. Then he tells the Philippians that because of two things, he was confident that this imprisonment would result in his deliverance. First, because they were praying for him. And second, because the Spirit of Christ was sustaining him. And for those reasons, he knew that this imprisonment would result in his deliverance. Then in verse 20, he tells the Philippians this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, that is now, even in prison, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or 
by death. And here we get a glimpse inside the heart of this man. He's doing what I'm commending to you this week for Advent. He is contemplating his own death. Let's watch Paul do it. Paul's expectation was that Christ would be honored in his body, whether he lives or dies. And here's the foundation. Here's why he believes and has such a hope. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and he'll explain that in the next verse, and to die is gain. That's the point of this Advent sermon. For the believer, to die is to gain. Paul will explain that in verse 23. First, though, he tells us how Christ will be honored in his body if he lives. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What Paul's saying is that if he survives this imprisonment, it will mean that he continues laboring for Christ. You see, the radical transformation that happened to Paul on the road to Damascus when he encountered the risen Christ will continue to produce fruit from his gospel labors. That's how Paul fully expects to honor Christ in his body if he survives. But here's the dilemma. Paul feels this dilemma as he contemplates his own mortality. We're still in verse 22. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. As Paul contemplates his imprisonment and his own death, he is caught between two affections, the desire to live and the desire to die. And he's giving the Philippians and us a glimpse into his heart. In reality, the decision on whether he lives or dies is actually not in his control. Ultimately, whether he lives or dies depends upon the sovereign plan of God for his life. And more immediately, that decision is in the hands of the Roman government. Nevertheless, Paul shows us what's in his heart. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. As Paul contemplates his own mortality, that's his dilemma. To live is Christ. And that would mean a fruitful life that honors Christ and benefits the Philippians. But to die for him is gain. And we'll come back to that. As we prepare ourselves for Advent this year, let us do so first by contemplating our own death. And as you consider your mortality, what is your dilemma? What are you hard-pressed between? The answer to that question will give you a glimpse into your own heart. Death, brothers and sisters, is all around us. Reminders of it come in daily like waves. I skimmed one newspaper yesterday. Three obituaries, well-known individuals in the fields of computing, business, and aviation, dead. 
ongoing reporting of the shooting at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. Six employees dead. China rolls out the world's first inhaled COVID vaccine. Why? To prevent death. Israel intensifies its response to protests around the country that were sparked by the death of Mahasa Amini. And Russia stepped up shelling. Ten more Ukrainians are dead. It's all around us. And that's just one newspaper, nothing local, and it wasn't even a particularly eventful Saturday. So what is this thing, this newsworthy and frightening thing we call death? Well, dictionary definitions almost always involve this phrase, the end of life or the departure from life. But the Christian worldview is something quite different. We see death, physical death that is, as the separation of the soul from the body, the destruction of the physical body as we know it, and the leaving of this world and entering into the next. So from our perspective, death isn't really the end of life unless all you're talking about is the physical or earthly body. R.C. Sproul put it like this, when we close our eyes in death, we do not cease to be alive. Rather, we experience a continuation of personal consciousness. No person is more conscious, more aware, and more alert than when he passes through the veil from this world into the next. That is death from the perspective of a Christian. It is not extinction. It is not annihilation. It is, as J.I. Packer put it, a departure into another mode of being. It is when the souls of the righteous are made perfect, though their bodies have not yet been resurrected. So as you prepare for Advent, contemplate the fact that that will happen to you. No one escapes it because it is appointed by God for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But why? Why does death even exist? The answer to that goes back at least as far as Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And Paul packs the entire answer into a single verse, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What happened in the Garden of Eden was not isolated to one man and one woman eating forbidden fruit. Adam was the representative of the entire human race. In his rebellious act, he committed treason against his creator, and he unleashed death upon the world, both physical and spiritual death. Death was the inevitable consequence of sin, and so death spread to all men. The devastation was vast. Every human being since Adam has been born in sin. We are all sinners, sinners by birth and sinners by our own choice. R.C. Sproul makes an important distinction. To be sure, he said, spiritual death, that is the separation of God, far worse than physical death. 
To be sure, spiritual death set in the very day that Adam and Eve sinned. But the fact that they did not experience physical death that day was not a result of God being lax regarding His warnings and judgments. Rather, it was a result of God's tempering His justice with mercy and allowing for the redemption of His fallen creatures, even though Adam and Eve were still ultimately destined to succumb to physical death as they did. And so it is that mankind exists to this day in a state of lifelong enslavement to the fear of death. And we find ourselves under the rule of the one who has the power of death, the devil. We were all born on death row. If you were to go to a church in Puritan New England, in order to get to the meeting house, you would have to pass through the churchyard. And the churchyard would be littered with gravestones. On some of those stones, you would see two words engraved in Latin, memento mori, remember, you must die. And that's what I'm urging you to do in your preparation this year for Advent. Memento mori, remember, you must die. It is wisdom, said the Puritan Thomas Watson, to remember our errand. That is to remember why you are here and why you are still alive. It will be but sad upon a deathbed for a man to think he was busying himself only about trifles, playing with a feather, and neglecting the main thing he came into the world about. If Latin words on gravestones are too morbid for you, contemplate the words of King David in Psalm 39. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days but a few handbreadths, and my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, and he does not know who will gather. Remember, you must die. Contemplate death. Contemplate what it is. Contemplate why it is. And then ask yourself, what is your dilemma between life and death? And then your heart might be ready for some good news. Contemplating death as gain. As Paul sat in his prison cell, contemplating his own death, why was it that he was so torn between a desire to live and a desire to die? That dilemma just doesn't make sense to us today. We cling to our earthly life as if it were the only thing that was. Oh, we play it safe. And we go to extremes just to extend our life, but a few more years. What a sad commentary it is that Christians who have claimed to the riches of heaven would do anything, it seems, to stay here just a little longer to play with their trinkets and their toys. 
Your view of death is indeed a window into your heart. It tells you something of what you truly desire. For Paul, these desires presented a dilemma. Verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's why he wanted to live, to honor Christ in his body. That's why Paul could say later to the, or earlier to the elders in Ephesus, that he did not count his life of any value, nor was it precious to him if only he may finish his course and the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus and to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's life. But why did he find death so appealing? Look at the second half of verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Let's be clear. To depart is to die. That's the language we used when we defined death. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. It's the destruction of the physical body as we know it. It's the leaving of this world. That's the departing that Paul is talking about. The leaving of this world and entering into the next. And for Paul, the entering into the next was to be with Christ. Yes, we are of good courage, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And we would rather... There's Paul giving us a glimpse into his heart again. We would rather, that's his desire, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And that, brothers and sisters, happens in an instant. There's no purgatory or any other intermediate state for the New Testament believer. And all of that begs the question, if Christ would be honored in Paul's body in life, then how would Christ be honored in Paul's body in death, because that's the argument that Paul is using. The answer is that Paul considers death, leaving this world and entering the presence of Christ to be of greater worth, more valuable, more desirable, far better than anything he leaves behind. In a word, death, in death, he gains everything. He gains Christ. And that is far better. And valuing Christ more than life itself is how he will honor Christ in his body in death. Don't mistake what I'm saying. Paul knows that death is an evil. He calls it the last enemy to be destroyed. He knows it's the dark consequence of sin But he also knows that death for the believer will bring him immediately into the presence of his Lord. All his earthly labors, all his pain, all his suffering will be over. He will be delivered from the body of death. But more importantly, he will have his reward. He will have Christ. So I'm urging you this morning, contemplate death as ultimate gain. I'm not making light of death itself. Death is ugly. 
The process of dying is not something we look forward to. Some of you even now are watching friends or loved ones go through this. It is painful and it is heartbreaking. What I'm saying this morning is that you should let those experiences preach to you like gravestones in the churchyard. The reason death for the believer is gained, the reason that it's far better than life is because the believer will be immediately in the presence of Christ, and in Christ is life, immortality, invincible peace, everlasting happiness, and perfect rest. That's why it is far better to depart and be with Him. You know, that's the very logic of the martyrs. conquered the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they loved not their lives even unto death. What was it that sustained Stephen but the presence of Christ? Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And when the stones began to crush his skull, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It was the presence of Christ that was sustaining him. The early church apologist, Justin Martyr, said this. He said that it was this divine presence that made the primitive Christians, it's interesting, he calls them primitive Christians. He was writing in about 165 AD. The primitive Christians, this is what, the divine presence is what made the primitive Christians to rejoice more when they were condemned than when they were absolved. And to kiss the stake and to thank the executioner and to sing in the flames, and to desire to be with Christ. Now, how did that happen? How did death become gain for the believers? The angel who announced the first advent did so with these words, Fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why did the Son of God come? He came to save. Unto you is born a Savior. That's good news. In light of our sin, And in light of the inevitable consequence of death, that is gloriously good news to hear those words, fear not. The saying is trustworthy, Paul wrote, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His Father sent Him on this mission. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And what moved the Father to do that was love. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
That big word, propitiation, we talked about it about three weeks ago. It means to atone for sin, to appease or to satisfy the wrath of God. All of this is good news of great joy. But why did the Son of God need to become flesh and dwell among us? Was there no other way? Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. This is a beautiful connection. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's what we celebrate in the first advent. The Son of God partaking of flesh and blood, taking on truly human flesh. That's why this child is called Emmanuel. He is God with us in human flesh. The picture here, though, is that of the high priest, a high priest who can enter the Holy of Holies. He can enter the presence of God, intercede on behalf of his brothers, and atone for their sins. That's the picture. But as we know, that is only a shadow of the reality. The author of Hebrews here is talking about the substance of that shadow, Jesus Christ. So why did he become flesh and dwell among us? Verse 14, so that through death, that is death on a cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He, as the Savior, came to destroy and to deliver, to destroy the devil and to deliver those enslaved to the fear of death. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. Paul is kicking off his argument now for why it was necessary for him to take on human flesh. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Clearly, he did not enter humanity to save spirit beings like angels. He came to save flesh and blood sinners like you and I. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, there's that word again, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, oh, he is able to help those who are being tempted. To be the sacrificial atonement for sin and the sympathetic high priest for humans, it was necessary that the Son of God be truly divine and truly human. He must be Emmanuel. God with us. If not, you and I remain in our sins. Death has the last laugh, and we are without hope in this world. But fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Truly, this is good news for those of us who so rightfully have earned death and hell as the wages of our sin. God is good and just, and he cannot and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. But the grace of God has appeared, 
In a mind-bending act of love, the first advent, God sent his son to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, to suffer and to die a humiliating, bloody death on a Roman cross. And it was there that he atoned for the sins of his people. His death meant that our death could be gain. He died. On the third day, he rose bodily from the grave, and now he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. And he offers forgiveness and life to all who call upon him, to all who repent of their sins and put their trust in him alone for salvation. That is the good news of the first advent. But what about the second advent? How is death related to it? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through, to, through 26. We're going to look at those to make our final connection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. There's a lot in there. In our Colossians study, we learned that at the cross, God through Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In the second advent, we see their final destruction what began in the first advent will be consummated in the second. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's part of what we anticipate as we look forward to the second advent in this season the final destruction of death. But you might be wondering, how is any of this gloomy message, Tate? How's any of this tidings of comfort and joy for a friend who's just been diagnosed with terminal cancer? And that's a fair question. To answer it, I want you to listen what, to what Martin Luther wrote in a letter to his dying father. He brings all of this together. He wrote to his father, Let your heart be strong and at ease in your trouble. For we have yonder a true mediator with God, Jesus Christ, who has overcome death and sin for us. He has such great power over sin and death that they cannot harm us. And he is so heartily true and kind that he cannot and he will not forsake us. That, Living Water Church, is our only comfort in this life and in death. Let me close with the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. We don't use them often here. I know that we sing them in one of our songs. 
but we don't really listen often to these words. These are a beautiful summary of the hope that we have because of the two advents of King Jesus. Kids, you should memorize these two questions and these two answers. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. Question two. How many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? How many things? Answer, three things. First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a redemption. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we contemplate our mortality, as we see the signs of death all around us, Father, I pray that you would give us the heart to see clearly that for the believer to die is gain. Father, I ask that you would make that part of our thinking and part of our feelings so that we would be in a dilemma about whether to live and bear fruit or to die and be in your presence because that is far better. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not have that assurance that to die is gain, Father, I pray that they would come to you right now, call upon you, call upon you to save their soul and to rescue them from the death that is inevitable and the far worse death that will come from being separated from you for eternity. Father, do that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.